Hello, I'm Nadia Singh, and welcome to IDSA's COVID-19 podcast series, which aims to keep IDSA members, medical professionals, and the public involved during the pandemic by speaking with experts in the field of infectious diseases. In this episode, we'll be discussing a recently published commentary on COVID-19 testing approaches with its authors, IDSA members Dr. Mary Hayden of Rush Medical College and Dr. Romney Humphreys with Vanderbilt University Medical Center. Thank you, doctors, for being with me. Dr. Humphreys, I'd like to start with you. Even as millions receive the COVID-19 vaccine, what are the critical goals of continued COVID testing and what can the results tell us about the virus? As we are you know, entering second year of the pandemic, um, there's a lot of fatigue, a lot of sort of desire to return to normal, but it is still really important for people if they have symptoms, first and foremost, to go in and uh, be tested for COVID-19. As we know, not everybody has received their vaccine yet, although we heard you know, this weekend some really great progress towards that goal. But there is continued circulation of the virus in our communities, and so it's really critical that we have a sense of the extent of that viral circulation. This helps inform policies such as reopening. So that's sort of first and foremost, just understanding the extent of transmission and circulation of the virus. Secondly, as many people in the audience I'm sure have heard about, there are um, continued emergence of variants of the COVID-19 virus, SARS-CoV-2. As we are having people um, vaccinated, if they develop symptoms, it again is critical that they come in and be tested for the reason that we really don't understand very well at this point how well the vaccine will cover against these variants. And so unless we're testing individuals who have been vaccinated and then develop symptoms, it's really hard for us to understand it. So that's another second goal is to really understand the dynamics of these new variants. And then finally, for those that have been exposed to the virus, but have not yet been vaccinated and are asymptomatic, that asymptomatic transmission is a a continued concern. Again, this is for individuals who are not fully vaccinated um, outside of healthcare settings, but it is important to consider testing based on local guidance after exposure. And this, again, helps us understand the extent of the pandemic, where we are today, as well as monitoring the dynamics. As you say, more and more people are vaccinated. Great points, Dr. Humphreys. Thank you. Why is COVID-19 testing more challenging in your experience, Dr. Hayden, than other diagnostic tests? It's a really difficult one to answer, I think, because um, the answer is so intertwined with all of the difficulties of the pandemic itself. Some of the difficulties that we faced were not necessarily a function of the test itself, but really the circumstances of a pandemic. And a number of these, I think your listeners are familiar with. So first of all, shortages of supplies. So we had shortages ranging from uh, swabs to transport media, to the reagents and chemicals needed to do the tests themselves, to anything and everything made of or containing plastic. So basically we had, over the course of the pandemic, recurrent shortages of everything we needed to do our tests. And this required labs to really be always scrambling and always be anxious about what we could get done. And it resulted in labs having to purchase or bring in and validate multiple different types of tests, because uh, I guess it was somewhat fortunate that if there were shortages of one particular type of uh, reagent, it might not be necessary in in a different test. So our lab's experience was 
similar to many others in that we brought in, I think, a total of eight different diagnostic tests on five different platforms during about a six-month period, which was really unheard of in my experience before that. And that doesn't even count the five different specimen types and three or four different transport media that we had to also validate during that time. So it, it made it extremely stressful and extremely difficult to get all of that done. A second frustrating factor, I think, was the initially the restrictions or the regulations imposed by the FDA through the EUA process, that it made, made it very challenging and time-consuming to stand up tests. It was particularly frustrating to academic laboratories like ours that were very familiar with developing LDTs or laboratory developed tests using PCR. So PCR is a very common, very stable, very reliable method, technique, or technology that uh, we have lots and lots of experience with. We had to jump through lots and lots of hoops in order to be able to stand up PCR tests with, again, the primers and the probe sequences were all published. The WHO had a test, but it was it was very difficult for us to adopt that in our laboratories early on. And some of this was due to things that were outside of our control, shortages of positive control material if we didn't have disease in our area soon. There was really no known gold standard against which we could compare the performance of the tests. And still, it's not clear to me really if we have a true gold standard at this moment. And then once we realized that there was asymptomatic infection, as Dr. Humphreys mentioned, that made it even more difficult because when we were trying to determine whether or not a positive test result was uh, due to a uh, true positive in an asymptomatic patient or uh, due to possibly a false positive. One more thing to mention about the shortages. I think the other thing that people may not be as aware of is that while the shortages affected COVID testing, they also affected other areas of the laboratory. So I mentioned that at times there were shortages of everything and anything that contained plastic. And obviously that affected other aspects of the lab. So we had shortages during this time of just common media used to grow bacteria, for example, or specialized transport media used to collect specimens like urine specimens for sexually transmitted infections, uh, for example. The last area that was challenging or made testing for COVID particularly difficult related to interpretation of the test. So lots of education needed. The general public probably has a much better understanding of polymerase chain reaction and PCR now, and even, uh, you know, pretest probability and all those sorts of factors that we consider in the laboratory when we, when we evaluate and interpret tests than they did um, a year ago. But there was a lot of um, education needed around those, around interpretation of the test so that clinicians would appropriately interpret the results. This was particularly difficult for the antibody test when they first came out, because at that time, actually, the FDA had really relaxed requirements for EUA quite markedly. All you had to do was say basically that you were going to be offering an antibody test and you could offer that test with really no no additional oversight or, or investigation or evaluation by the FDA of the performance characteristics of the test. So there are lots of tests out there uh, with very poor performance characteristics. And at the same time, very few, when those were released in June, only a small fraction of the U.S. population had already been infected with COVID. So the prevalence of the disease in the population was low. And so combining poor specificity of a test and low prevalence, you could test and the test result might 
be as likely to be a false positive as a true positive. And similarly related to PCR type tests, the desire to use the cycle threshold value in a quantitative way to predict the uh, risk of infectivity when these tests were all developed as qualitative tests pose challenges because lots of pushes to report out CT values, but many caveats associated with using those CT values uh, in any sort of way to predict infectivity, for example, I think oftentimes the end users were unaware of the limitations of the using the CT values in that way, those ways. IDSA and the CDC present the COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network. Timely COVID-19 information curated by clinicians for clinicians. Be the first to know. Visit IDSA's COVID-19 Real-Time Learning Network for the latest COVID-19 resources for the frontline healthcare community. Go to COVID19LearningNetwork.org. Thank you for your insights, Dr. Hayden. Dr. Humphreys, turning back to you, what are the recommendations around continued testing in communities where there's been widespread COVID-19 positivity? It's safe to say there's been widespread COVID-19 positivity in every community at this point. The recommendations for testing, you know, first and foremost, center around individuals that have symptoms. And so if you have a loss of taste or smell or cough or fever or any of these symptoms that we've described for the virus, those are uh, good reasons to go in and be tested. And so that's, that's pretty straightforward, right? And so that is regardless of whether or not you've been vaccinated, whether or not you have a known exposure, if you have symptoms, it's, it's time to go in and be tested. The more challenging thing is I think is for individuals that do not have symptoms and when testing might be needed for those individuals. And so the CDC has come out with some guidance that differentiates uh, individuals who are fully vaccinated, meaning two weeks post the second dose of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccine or two weeks after one of the single dose vaccines like the Johnson and Johnson vaccine. Those individuals, if they are asymptomatic and they have a known exposure, they don't necessarily need to be tested. If you're not fully vaccinated, and so that includes perhaps getting your first dose or being within that two-week period post your second dose. Testing is still recommended post-exposure. So this would be if you've been exposed to an individual that is known to be positive for SARS-CoV-2 to go ahead and be tested. The other big differentiator is whether or not you are working in a healthcare setting where the guidelines are a little bit more stringent, simply because we're dealing with very vulnerable populations were they to be exposed to the virus. And so in the these instances, testing is still done post-exposure, regardless of vaccine status in these healthcare settings before procedures and all of the types of testing that we've done all along. There's not, um, at this point in the game, much changes other than those um, individuals out in the community setting who have been exposed may not need to get tested again if they have no symptoms. Thank you, Dr. Humphreys. And Dr. Hayden, what are your best recommendations for COVID-19 testing coupled with a multifaceted approach to curb the virus. Recently, we've really emphasized vaccines, which I think is appropriate. They are really a fantastic addition to our armamentarium against COVID, but vaccination alone is not going to bring the pandemic to an end, especially if a large fraction of the U.S. population declines vaccination. And I think We also have to remember that when we read those increasing percentages of persons who have been vaccinated in the U.S., we're talking about adults only. 
of the population under age 18, which composes about 25% of the US population, very few have been vaccinated right now. So there's really other things that we have to be doing. There's lots of COVID still in the country. Um, we're recording you know, still more than about 50,000 cases per day. The incident rate of cases is about where it was over the summer. We could have a, a fourth surge if we don't control transmission now and continue to vaccinate like crazy. The multifaceted approach should include testing as Dr. Humphreys just reviewed. And I guess the only other thing I would um, add to her uh, comments is that while I don't know if there's an official recommendation, my personal recommendation would be that if you have been vaccinated, but you develop symptoms consistent with COVID that you get tested because we have identified it's uncommon, but we have identified uh, individuals who are more than two weeks after their um, second dose right now, we've just had the two dose series used in this country, but uh, more than two weeks after their second dose who have developed symptomatic COVID. So we really want to know who those people are. And as Dr. Humphrey mentioned earlier on whether or not perhaps they might even be infected with a variant, one of these variants that may be perhaps uh, that the current vaccines may protect us against a little less well. The other things that we need to continue to do are the follow the prevention and containment strategies that we know are effective. So regardless of your vaccination status, uh, wear a mask in public places, avoid crowded indoor places, stay home and away from others if you develop symptoms of COVID, perform frequent hand hygiene, and then of course get vaccinated when it's your turn. Um, I know we're all anxious to be out of the pandemic. I know I just spent spring break with my kid kind of in isolation, which is no fun. We all want to be done with this, but we're not quite there yet. And so we really need to keep being vigilant about all of these important considerations so that we can get to the end of this. Thank you both. Dr. Humphrey, sticking with you, how reliable are the new at-home tests and what are the advantages and challenges surrounding them? Is it still best to be tested at a formal testing center? So first off, how interesting is it that we have at-home infectious diseases testing now? Certainly something that I did not anticipate we would have, you know, at least in my career. When we talk about at-home testing, there's a couple of different flavors. So there's one flavor where your physician places an order for you and you can receive the test kit. And that test kit typically is just a swab that you're going to use to collect a sample and then send that into a lab. So that's sort of one flavor of at-home testing, which is really more at-home sample collection than really testing. Then there's another flavor of testing where sort of like a home pregnancy test, the individual collects their own sample and performs the test in their own home. That I think is where people have a little bit more apprehension about the, the relative performance of these tests. So these are individuals that are using these tests who are perhaps not as proficient and diligent at performing lab testing as somebody in a healthcare setting might be. How well they work remains to be seen. You know, most individuals are pretty conscientious and they're going to do a good job of following the instructions. Sometimes we have a tendency uh, to repeat test ourselves a bunch of times just to be double, triple sure. I know certainly that's something I did when I was pregnant. I tested myself multiple times to see if it was truly a positive or not, right? And one thing to keep in mind if you're, if you're doing that is every time you repeat test yourself, your pretest probability is going down. And that means the chances of a false positive result goes up. And so it can be really hard to understand the dynamics of that outside of testing in the lab. And it's something that we see with lab testing as well. It's just 
a little bit more straightforward to manage. The other thing that comes up with home testing is the ability for us to track the number of positive cases. And so many of the home tests that have been uh, granted emergency use authorization by the FDA have some mechanism by which the results are transmitted into our public health reporting. So for example, perhaps using your smartphone to log the results in or requiring that smartphone to read the test for you. And then that allows us to account for the number of positive tests. That's one of the big concerns um, many of us had with this idea of home testing is that we would lose our ability to track the progress of the pandemic or be blinded to this whole cohort of cases where people are just doing the test at home and then um, not coming in or not reporting that result. And so we kind of lose track of those. So there are some really good mitigation in place to prevent that from happening, but it is not a universal feature. As far as an analytical performance goes, right? So this is the, the if all things are done correctly, what the uh, sensitivity of detecting a positive and specificity of detecting somebody who's truly negative is tricky to understand in that home setting, but the data to date look pretty promising. But regardless, none of these tests are as sensitive as a lab-based molecular diagnostic test like a real-time PCR assay or other nucleic acid amplification tests. There are certain instances where a positive result might need to be confirmed or a negative result might need to be confirmed by sending a, a sample into the lab. And these typically are more complicated cases. So for example, an individual who was recently positive for COVID um, and now has new symptoms, figuring out the results in that context can be tricky to understand. Is this, you know, continued shedding of the virus from the last infection or is this a new infection? And so sometimes that requires sending samples into the lab. You know, the bottom line is today we don't know enough about the performance of these at-home tests to really come up with any guidance around their use. As we progress and we learn more about the pros and cons of um, this type of testing, um, that guidance will be forthcoming. But today, you know, the data we have is primarily the data that the companies submitted to the FDA, which is, uh, you know, it's more minimal than what would be uh, required for a clearance by the FDA outside of the emergency use um, authorization process. I'd like to pose this last question to both of you doctors, and I'll start with Dr. Hayden. How has the COVID-19 pandemic changed how mass testing practices will be managed in the future? We're just starting to do sort of look backs and, uh, you know, deep dives into testing and what has worked and what we've what we've learned through the pandemic, what we can apply uh, routinely to testing moving forward and what we might be able to apply or do differently or do better for mass mass testing. One of the things that I had had no experience with, even in Chicago with a very harsh climate, uh, was found to be quite successful was this drive-through testing. And, and I know that that was really rolled out across many places across the country. And, and I think there are better and worse ways to do it. But um, I, the fact that we were able to do it at all was quite notable. And 
will be something that may be used again in, in the future, particularly in emergency sorts of settings. Self-collected specimens and at-home testing, like Dr. Humphreys mentioned, really has allowed us to uh, expand the throughput of specimen collection when that was a bottleneck for us, the self-specimen collection, and then the home testing to just expand the ability to test um, more, more widely. And especially for folks who may have find it very difficult to, to transport into a facility and also home testing, of course, gets rid of the opportunity for an infectious person to expose another one outside of their home. I do hope that we can do things a little bit different, perhaps from a federal level, perhaps more coordinated federal response to reduce the number of shortages that uh, we suffered through and to better allow better partnership perhaps between public health and academic medicine to uh, really fully use the capacity that exists there. And I, I would extend that, I guess, one step further to um, even outside of diagnostic testing to genomic surveillance. You know, I had several colleagues who were directors of genomic research research cores who were sent home and, and basically, you know, sat home for six, six to eight weeks um, because only what was considered essential COVID research was allowed at their institutions. When if we had, you know, knowing what we know now, we could have ramped them up to start doing uh, genomic surveillance of the virus uh, very early on in the pandemic. There are things that we did that we probably will do again in the future, and there are things that we didn't do, but that now looking back, uh, we might appreciate would be useful to do in another similar situation. Hope we don't, but if we do have one. I think we've learned a lot. <laughs> and I think that there's there's certainly areas I hope that you know we we take these lessons and find ways creative ways to implement them on how we address the next pandemic. You know, one of the biggest things, and Dr. Hayden mentioned this earlier, is many labs developed um, a lot of redundancy in our testing capacity. And this was in part due to supply chain needs, and it was also in part due to all the variety of turnaround times that were needed for um, different scenarios for testing. So very rapid results for patients going in for trauma-based surgeries versus maybe a more uh, slow turnaround time for patients that have been exposed and are symptomatic, but are at home and isolating. There's a lot to be learned about, um, you know, the value of those redundancies. Usually in the lab, we try to minimize having too many different boxes, but this was a really good example of where having multiple options made a lot of sense. From the supply chain, I have no idea what the answer is there, but it is exceedingly complex. Unfortunately, this is a situation where just providing more money or more resources to the problem doesn't really fix the problem. I mean, to develop a new manufacturing plant for diagnostic tests is, you know, typically a multi-year process. So figuring out how we can speed that type of thing up is a good uh, lesson learned. And I, I totally agree with Dr. Hayden as well about the regulatory framework that surrounded this pandemic. I think that there were lots of missteps early on as far as who could be doing testing, 
um, how tests were cleared um, or given um, emergency use authorization. Folks at the FDA spent just a tremendous amount of time and effort doing everything they could to get as many tests out there as possible. And I think that they employed a lot of really creative thinking and solutions, but it definitely was a process that had to be worked through. And so hopefully we can learn some lessons from that um, and perhaps streamline things a little bit for the future. There's been a lot of discussion for as long as I've been in clinical microbiology talking about regulating lab-developed tests. These are tests that are developed in typically academic medical centers and labs like mine or Dr. Hayden's. These are things that we do routinely. We do large validation studies, but we don't put them through the FDA because it's a test that serves our individual patient populations or it's a disease that there's just too few patients to make it worthwhile, the tremendous expenditures to get a fully FDA cleared product. And so there, there still is a lot of discussion around these regulations. In fact, I think that there's some legislation going in um, in the next couple of weeks to sort of resurrect this idea of regulating lab tests. And I think that would be just a tremendous mistake and really an instance where we haven't learned from this pandemic and we haven't learned the value of these lab developed tests and the capacity that can be ramped up very quickly through leveraging some of this expertise in these academic centers. And so I think that that's, you know, one thing for us to keep our eyes on because I think there's tremendous possibility. It sounds good on paper that we would want everything nicely, tightly regulated. But what winds up happening is that it just becomes prohibitively complex to um, develop these tests and most places can't do it. At this time, I'd like to thank Drs. Humphreys and Hayden for their time, participation, and expertise. For the latest information and resources on the COVID-19 pandemic, visit IDSA's real-time learning network, covid19learningnetwork.org. Tune in next time as another diverse panel of medical experts discusses the latest on this rapidly evolving pandemic. The views and opinions expressed here are those of the presenters and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. Involvement of CDC should not be viewed as endorsement of any entity or individual involved with the podcast. I'm Nadia Singh.